broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another awesome episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. And today we're going to be tackling yet another 2010 movie. That's one of our favorite years, apparently. Guess what? I did not select this movie. I didn't select it. I almost selected you it. You nearly did. This is what happened. I selected this film, and then Jordan texted back and said, actually, that's one of our fan picks. I was like, oh, perfect. Well, then let's use that as the fan pick, and I'll pick another one. Mm. And you've already heard our review of that. We know how that turned it out. <laughs> turned it. How that turned out. Um, so this selection was made by Seth Harris, mm-hmm. fan Seth Harris, so thank you very much. A documentary film called Exit Through the Gift Shop. And you know what? Seth has done, has made quite a list of selections for us, and and we're going to be working through those over the next few months as they're available on on Netflix. Um, Some of the films that we've already reviewed that Seth has suggested, uh, Submarine, which was was the, yeah, that was a great one. That was the Welsh uh, indie film that we reviewed. Um, and then also, Once Upon a Time in the West. Phenomenal film that I'm so glad I saw that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So, Seth, I owe you on that. That opened my eyes yeah. to an amazing film. Yeah. So, um, so again, another shout out to Seth. We have uh, some some more fan reviews coming up in the very new future that I think we're, all, we're going to really enjoy. Uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, let you know a little bit about that later on in the podcast. But right now, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the Netflix summary for Exit Through the Gift Shop. Uh, filmmaker Terry Guta's project to chronicle the underground world of street art takes a fascinating twist when he meets stencil artist Banksy. And, again, this was a 2010 release. This film is kind of interesting because um, Banksy is the listed director for it, um, but he's not the one who compiled most of the film that was shown in the movie. Right. Um, Banksy has directed another film. It's called The Antics Roadshow, which I think is a play off of Antique Roadshow, the popular BBC, or, or I'm not sure if it's BBC, but British TV show, and then... By Denton, public PBS TV show. Um, But Banksy, in and of himself, or herself, we do not know exactly who Banksy is. Right. It's a very tightly kept secret. Uh, Within the past, like, two years, I believe, there there was a uh, report that Banksy may have been arrested. But it turns out that was a hoax. Yeah. Um, So Banksy has not been arrested. No one truly knows who Banksy is. Well, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who actually know, but no friends one's speaking. And, friends and family probably yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the way this film started out was through this guy, Terry. Um, just He would just videotape everything. Yeah. And he just, you know, and, and that actually spawned from something very interesting that they talked about in the film, his mother's death when he was young. Right. Apparently his mom had a very serious illness that nobody told him about because he was... The youngest of a large family. He was only 11 when she passed away. And um, the way that he found out was rather tragic. According to the documentary, what had happened was that news of her passing spread through different town members before it got to the school. And one of the students heard it somewhere and then told him, well, what do you know? Your mother is dead. Essentially, kind of a, a diss on the playground during yeah. recess. 
These kids are awful. They are. They really God, are. kids are awful. But what what that triggered in Terry was basically him thinking, you know, when she did pass, is being like, you know, I wish I kind of knew that the time was limited because I could have, you know, made intentionally made more memories. I could have documented stuff and, and had those memories. So that kind of shaped him going forward to, to be in the mindset of, you know, things could end kind of at any moment, and every moment that happens with any person in my life is a moment that will not happen again that I would like to remember. So he just started filming everything. Yes. Because uh, he didn't want to miss something. And th- that's like, that's an, it was an obsessive yeah. uh, behavior that he that he created. And honestly, you know, watching things like Hoarders, that show Hoarders and things like that, obsessive behaviors like that usually come out of some sort of fear of missing something. Yeah, or or it, like I know that a lot of a lot of the stories um, that you hear about people who have been like hoarders have they've had a, some kind of traumatic experience. A lot of people yeah. from the Great Depression had a, kind of a hoarder mentality when it came to food. Yes, you know they would they would put away canned goods like crazy. I recently heard of a person in a neighborhood nearby my church who wanted to donate all of this food to us that they had just been hoarding away. And then they had to move and they had to get rid of it. All of it was expired except one tub of oatmeal. Jeez. Yeah. And so it was just like kind of sad to see how um, you were trying to do something that was positive to make sure that you were taken care of and then that you could get back to the community. But then it fell apart. Yeah. So, but anyway... um, Banksy is a street artist, and through the course of the movie, Guetta becomes a, a street artist as well. Um, very misguided. Very misguided. <laughs> In a very misguided way. It, it's more of like the, the fanboy version of it. You know, people out there who, to, to, to make a, a, a good parallel, it, it's people who have become fans of film. And then they're just like, I want to do that, even though they haven't taken the time to to learn how to do it. They just jump in and they start making films, and they're just like, there's my film. Right. And they want it to be, like, a big deal right off the bat. Well, thing is, you haven't honed any skills. You haven't put time into learning what you need to really do. Your material's probably not all that thought out. Right. Geta um, becomes known as Mr. Brainwash at the, at the end of the film. Um, and we're kind of jumping all over the place here, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but but it all tied together. Such a street art, right? Exactly. Um, but he's producing things that that are essentially knockoffs of people like Banksy, but also knockoffs of like Andy Warhol. Yes. You know, and a picture of a Campbell's soup can does not art make. Right. You know, there the re the reason that Warhol's art was defining at the time was because nobody else was doing it and he was making a unique statement for that era. But if you're just going to mass produce art that's like um, what was it? Like um, chimpanzees with with Marilyn Monroe hair yeah. you know, as kind of an homage to, to the art of um, Warhol then you're not really making art in and of itself. You're just copying something else. Well, the fact that Mr. Brainwash also wasn't doing his own art. That's right. the other thing. He has a team. He has a studio system, which um, actually is very interesting in terms of like um, how, how art is produced in different countries. Like in Japan, 
like there's like Studio Ghibli is run by one particular animator and his name is on everything but other people are producing the art he's just overseeing it and that kind of um, that mentality of we're going to produce art that is uh, communal but it's going to be under one person's name is actually something that happens quite a bit in other countries but here in the United States um, an example of an artist that does this artist being used loosely is Jim Davis Mm-hmm. The, the creator of Garfield. Yes. Um, arguably, Garfield was much more original in the seventies than it was than it is today. But he has perfected the the studio model that was brought over from from Japan. He brought that over. He incorporated it into his own work, and so he's able to do a lot of other projects on top of Garfield to make things work in his favor and to and to to be creative in his. Enterprises. Well, let's jump backwards and go go to the, to the very beginning. Be, the beginning of the film. It's established who Terry is, mm-hmm. and that's how you get you know the information on why he starts filming everything, and then his filming turns into following street artists. But before you get into that, you you also learn that he owned a clothing shop. Yes, a vintage clothing shop. a vintage clothing shop. But he reveals that basically he was buying like name brand stuff that he was then saying was vintage and marked the hell out of it. Like, ridiculous. And I found that really interesting because, first of all, that says something about Terry as a person, that he's not the most honest of people. No. And he does not have a problem with gouging people on prices. He doesn't have a problem on on duping people into... Because the the people who are going to his shop are thinking, oh, well, this, this is something that... Um, is vintage when it when it's he bought it in bulk and then marked up the prices. Uh, he said that he could get from a fifty dollar bale of clothing that he purchased, he could get like five thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, because he's marking up so much. Right. The other interesting thing about that being in the film is that it um, relates to the hype of artwork and how that dictates the price, just like. You know, Terry's bringing in this this clothing and putting a hype around it, saying it's like this vintage, amazing stuff when it's not, and people are buying it for these giant inflated prices. That happens with artwork too, yeah. and you see that very clearly in the context of the film when they're talking about street art, because this is something that goes from being viewed as um, illegal garbage that's put on the sides of buildings to this coveted, amazing. Uh, on the edge of um, innovation art that people want to yeah. start collecting, and then all of a sudden it's worth all this money. Yeah. When before, they, it would be on the side of a building, people would go past it and be like, oh, that's terrible, they defaced that building, and then it would come down in no time, and people didn't give a second thought. That's the same exact artwork, but since times past perception of what it is has changed and hype has been built around it, people are like, that's a collectible. That's worth so much money. Right. It's crazy. Right. Well, it's, it's like um, the, the the purpose of, of graffiti when it originally started off in New York was not, well, I mean, graffiti has been around as long as humans have had walls. The people have scribbled stuff on walls. But the, the modern graffiti and modern street art movement came about from these young men and women who wanted to make sure that their name was going to stay in society. So they were, it, it was as simple as a Sharpie marker. They would pass it like a sign 
or maybe in, in a metro, they would just write their name really fast. Mm-hmm. And the um, the graffiti style developed, the style uh, the stylistic fonts developed because they had to write so quickly that they that it exaggerated their handwriting. Mm-hmm. So then that moved from being just like a tag, what they call a tag, to then being spray paint art. And then the spray paint art, they started to get more original. Um, people would start sneaking into the metro tunnels and they would start doing these elaborate murals on actual uh, me- metro trains. Um, and then they would, they would also do um, work in different mediums and then putting them up. Like, for example, stenciling became really big. Banksy is known primarily as a stenciler, but he also does sculpture works. He also does uh, paintings um, and, and sticker work as well. Um, and then it, it, it's moved to that from that also into tiling. One of the the biggest tiler tilers that's known is um, an artist known as Space Invader, and that, who's ter- one of Terry's cousins. Yes, yeah, and that's how he gets. And that's how he gets this. into it is because he's following Invader around, seeing how he's placing tiles throughout the throughout uh, uh, his native France and also then around the world. Um, and then another Tyler that's well known, and his his identity is still not been revealed, is the Toynbee Tyler, who was who might have had some issues, but he leaves tiles about um, like the end of the world and how he's been rejected and, and things like that throughout mm-hmm. cities. He's a, he's based out of Philadelphia, actually. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Not far from us. No, not far at all. In fact, there are some Toynbee tiles in Baltimore. Cool. Very cool. Uh, the thing about uh, street art for me is there there are versions of street art that I do view as just defacing and you know you can tell like yeah. there there are times when there's like stuff that's spray painted and it, it's intentional just to be de- just to be, defacing yeah. and make something look terrible and gang tags that's another very bad aspect of street art because those are usually put up to signify territory you know say this gang runs this territory stuff like that so for that reason Graffiti is bad, but when you get these people going out who are just trying to create nice pieces of artwork, like just art to share, right. and it's on a building where you know, say it's like a building that's not that's vacant mm-hmm. at that point, you know, what's kind of the harm? And I encourage that kind of stuff in my opinion. I think it's great to see you know a rundown old crappy building that's not being used, and then some street artist comes by and puts this nice big mural on it. And it's something that people can look at and be like, oh, that used to be a gigantic eyesore, and look at it now. It's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's... Street art... This is this is the thing. Um, the medium is not the message in Correct. street art. Um, and so so if you, you have the medium of a blank wall, you can choose to do a couple things like it. You could do something negative, like you were saying, gang tags, um, which are meant to mark territory and show where you'll get shot, essentially. And then there's the art that, like, Space Invader is doing and Banksy is doing. Um, They're trying to make a point out of their message. And Banksy is especially known for being very critical of the modern British government. One of his most famous ones was was on the side of a building that was near a playground. And there's a, a closed caption TV camera that's right there. And so the message is one nation under CCTV. Yeah. You know, and, and of course that got 
removed pretty quickly. No, of course. Of course. Um, I will say it, it takes, in my opinion, a certain breed of creative individual to go out and put a piece of artwork out that you've taken a lot of time to, to craft. De- to develop, yeah. And, and put up uh, just to know that it's coming down, you know? And, and also not take any credit for it because yeah. that's what a lot of actual street artists are doing. They go out, they put up their, their piece of artwork for people to see, but they never get credit for it. They don't get reimbursed. They, they're not getting paid. Yeah. And that takes a certain type of creative person, someone who just either has a point to make and they just want someone to see it so they get that point, right. or just someone who just has the need to just create things yeah. and, and get things out. Like, I personally have had... I'm a creative person, and that's why I do a lot of podcasting. I don't feel satisfied and happy in life unless I'm creating something. Uh, it's like a release for me. I have to get the creativity out of me. Yeah. There have definitely been times in my life where I haven't been doing something creative, and I feel wrong. I feel uncomfortable, unsettled. But then I'll like sit down and like write a piece of poetry or something. And you know, not to be ridiculous about it, but when I'm done with it, it's kind of like the same feeling of after sex. Yeah. You know, you have had a release mm-hmm. and you feel calmed yeah. by it. You're just like, oh my gosh, I feel relaxed now. I got that out. I mean, one of the things about creativity is that it's a self-expression. But it's also so much more work to create something than it is to consume something. You know, because if you're just um, sitting in front of a television to watch television, I mean, there, you're not really... There could be so many other things that you could do with your time that's more constructive than right. just watching TV and movies all the time. Uh, admittedly, we're making a, a podcast about film in and of itself, but that's because we're engaging with the film and we understand and we want to contribute something to the creative nature that surrounds film. If we were just sitting there watching film for our own entertainment, then we're wasting a lot of our time. We could be doing something more creative, like we could be um, involved in community art. We could be like writing f- personal fiction that we w- wanted to publish. If if we weren't doing this, I would be finding something to do, making music, um, which I did uh, for a long time. Was was music was my artistic expression, and I I, I sought out jobs where I could express myself through music and through audio mixing and things like that because I needed something to do that was just giving back to the society in one way or another. Um, I I think the thing about street art is that the people who are good at it, the people who understand it, um, are trying to make society question what's around them. Right. You know, and one of the great pieces of art... um, and I'm sure you have his name written down, is the the Andre the Giant motif. Shepherd Fairy. Shepherd Fairy. He goes around and he puts up the Andre the Giant motif and it, underneath it, it has the word obey. Yes. You know. Well, it was interesting because he talks about it in the, the documentary and he said that he basically, it was kind of for nothing at first. Mm-hmm. Um, he just picked Andre the Giant for no reason and then used the obey and just tried to put it everywhere because he had a quote about it. He said... He was doing it because it gains real power from perceived power. Right. So, really, it has no meaning, but then when you keep putting it up and people keep seeing it and seeing it and seeing it, it starts to have power from nothing. 
right. because people see it enough and they're like, oh, I recognize that. And then if enough people recognize it and they can start talking about it, it kind of reaches celebrity status. And now, when you see it now, everybody, everybody who has seen the Andre the Giant motif um, knows what it is immediately when they see it again. Yeah. You know, um, and there was, there's a street artist in Baltimore who goes around putting up stickers that say Enterprise. Um, and so if you see an Enterprise sticker um, in one place, and then you see it, like I used to see it all the time on like a, not a lamppost, but uh, it was an electrical box mm-hmm. on, on a street that I would pass. So I, when I saw that, it breeded, it got into my mind and it became something familiar. So then when I saw it in another part of the town, I'd be like, oh yeah, there's Enterprise. You know, uh, and it was something that you can identify with and something that becomes familiar, but then it also starts to challenge your view because you're looking to try and find something that, that you haven't seen in that part of the town before. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually can stimulate your mind to be more engaged in the environment. Yeah, more than, aware of what's right, actually around exactly. You. Yeah. You know? And that's the great thing about you know, true street art Mm -hmm. is that it is geared towards making people kind of see things that, that they otherwise would not. Right. But also for some reasons, you know, when it's just put up just to pretty something up that looked awful, you know, I know that's done as well. There have been instances where people will actually go out and seek out street artists to legally come in and take a building that's an eyesore and, and make something beautiful on it. Right. Uh, one of the things that I would love to do if I had my dream house is I would have a like a ten foot tall concrete wall in my backyard, mm-hmm. um, and every year I'd paint a new mural. You know, because then you know it's adding diversity. Of course, n- neighbors would hate that, but you know that if, if it's on my property and I'm doing it, there's no yeah. no n- no laws are being broken there. Um, It's not transgressive, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, but the street art that's done in the film does have a certain transgressive quality about it because these people do go out in the middle of the night. And you, there's a lot of scenes where um, the cops are actually chasing the people or they're getting caught. I love the one scene where um, where they're filming um, and he's filming Ferry putting up uh, Andre the Giant poster and a policeman pulls up right next to it. And while he's working, they, the cops don't bother him. Mm-hmm. And then, he, like, the ladder tips over and falls onto the police truck. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like nothing really happens because of that. Even though they're doing something that's illegal, it's just kind of accepted for what it is at that yeah. point. Well, because if it becomes well enough known, yeah. I think the the police kind of understood, like, well, this guy's not, like, a malicious individual. Right. It's just kind of whatever um but and, and that's the other thing like in my opinion is, is street art something that police officers should be hassling people about i think there probably should be more important things being handled like go out trying to catch drunk drivers um set even just setting up speed traps you know that's more important because they're going to kill someone no yeah. one's going to kill somebody with street art Right. I mean, I guess technically you could find a way to do that, but I don't think anyone is doing well, that. There's, and, and again, this this differentiates between gang tags and street art. Right. Because, yes. you Correct. know, gang problem, gang violence is a problem, and, you know, but the thing is that it's a problem 
that we can't address just by punitive measures, but we have to change the environment that people are in to give them a better life and then make sure that they understand that violence is the worst possible resort to trying to solve their problems. Yeah. Um, I will say that, that, you know, tied into Shepherd Ferry and this documentary, my younger sister teaches art in mm-hmm. inner city Baltimore. And there's a, um, uh, well, what she does is she takes the Shepherd Ferry's work and introduces it to the children. And I think she has shown them exit through the gift shop as well to kind of get them excited and engage them more. Because, you know, for kids, how excited are they going to be about, like, real like, what's perceived as real art these days. You know what I mean? Like, the Mona Lisa and stuff like that. Like, how excited are kids going to get? Um, so to introduce something like what Shepard Fairey's doing and, and Banksy and all that kind of stuff, it's it's like art with a cause, and kids kind of react to that much differently. And it's kind of like, that's kind of cool type thing. And also, well, street art breaks the rules of what's considered con- to be proper and conventional yes. art as well. Um, like, cartoon characters are routinely used in them. And they use exaggerated characters that kids can identify with. Um, like, uh, well, what's some of the ones that I've seen? Like, um, you sometimes see the Day of the Dead skeletons in a very exaggerated almost cartoonish style. I've seen pandas done in a very cartoonish style. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, Invader with his tiles of ghosts and Pac-Man instantly recognizable to kids, you know, because they understand video games. Um, and then like there's, uh, the stick man one that they showed. That's this happy looking cartoon character. Yep. That's always winking. Mm-hmm. You know, kids can identify with this, and they can feel safe around this, and they can understand that art doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, the Mona Lisa, or even something like uh, Pablo Picasso's Blue Period, right. which you look at and you can't understand. But if you look at an iconic image that communicates something that you can understand, then that can make you really excited about art. In the film, when it moved on to actually getting to the point where uh, Terry meets uh, Banksy, mm-hmm. they introduce Banksy by talking about his, the big thing that he did where he went into a museum and planted his own art on the walls. Oh, man. That is awesome. Reverse art theft. It's kind of like the Thomas Crown Affair, going back to when we did that, um, but he actually was stealing some stuff, but also putting stuff back. But right. how bold... To, like, just walk, just walk in, in and just put your artwork up. And it's a cool statement because it's like, hey, this is art, too. Yeah. Well, and also what he was doing, he, he wouldn't just put up, a, like, a, like, a poster or something. He had, like, a canvas on framed, framed yeah. and everything like that. And I guess there was glue on the back of it. He just, like, stuck it on the wall. And then he slapped, a like, one of those official-looking little white tiles that they put next to artwork in museums that tell what who did it and what their motivation was behind it and everything like that. And it w- it'll be it would have been interesting to have seen people's reactions to it like if some people actually believed that it was there on purpose. Yeah. You know, like it had been there and it's part of the museum. Yeah. Cuz I bet there were people who believed that. Well, and there the, the one piece that they showed and I wish they had shown more of this kind of work um, that Banksy that did was uh, like a woman dressed in Renaissance clothing, but wearing a gas, gas mask. Gas mask, yeah, yeah, that stuck out to me. Very, very interesting. 
stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, like, someone, like, you're going through, like, a Renaissance area of a museum, and you come across someone who's dressed in Renaissance clothes and a painting, but they're wearing a gas mask. What would the juxtaposition be? And like you said, what would the fan audience reaction be? Well, and, and then what becomes so important and interesting with when Terry hooks up with Banksy is that now Terry is acting as the person who can get the reactions. Yes. And that's what happens. Like, Terry would go after um, they had, you know, Banksy had put something out in the public, and Terry would act like he just happened upon it and film the reactions of other people uh, and he would act like he's just filming like that it's there and like oh my gosh this is interesting he talked to people like what do you think about this yeah um, and he he had kind of framed it as he felt it was important because that was stuff that was otherwise going to be lost yeah you know people wouldn't have that kept for posterity because it was eventually going to be taken down and then you wouldn't know what people's reactions were right. to it. Well, and also, it was funny because people are like, educating him on who Banksy is and what he stands for and everything like that when they don't realize that Terry knows them. Yeah, but then the other thing that was so interesting about that is one of the guys was like, I feel like it could be a Banksy thing, but he typically doesn't do this kind of stuff. He mm-hmm. typically does spray paint stencil. So, I don't know. I think it's probably not him. So, it's just kind of funny as the viewer to watch that part to just be like, it is Banksy, dude. Learn your stuff, man. Well, you know, how are you really going to know? No. But that right. was the craziest thing to me. When, uh, that was specifically the moment where he had that uh, telephone booth that he cut in half and then re-welded and had yeah. an axe sticking out of it with, like, bl- fake blood around it. Yeah. That was a huge undertaking. Like, that's that's a lot of work. And they have a truck that they just drive in and drop it off, and yeah. nobody stops them. Well, you know, your common person walking by, you're just assuming that whoever owns that building is probably doing something. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, you just don't question things like that. It's kind of like, oh, whatever, they're doing what they're, they're doing supposed something. to. And I love I love the one woman's response when he's like, well, what do you think about it? And she's like, well, somebody hates the phone company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty funny, and then we end up seeing the really interesting thing, and and this ties into our um, review of Escape from Tomorrow, where Terry follows Banksy to Disneyland. I think it was Disneyland in California. Yeah, yeah, and um, he does a a uh, a art piece uh, about Guantanamo Bay. Basically, he has like a blow up detainee, in essence, that he puts near a ride so that people kind of see it and maybe. Yeah. Hopefully reflect. I'm sure a lot of people didn't get the reference, but hopefully someone did. And then, yeah, he put know. it in this ride that had this, like this desert motif, so that it, it, it's kind of reminiscent of Afghanistan. Uh, and you know, the the person is there. They've got a hood over their head. They're wearing an orange jumpsuit like a prisoner would, and then their hands are in front of them, handcuffed together. You know, and so he like inflates this this um, this character up. And leaves it in this, uh, it, like actually inside the right territory in and of itself. He had to cross the fence to actually put it up. And you see these um, Terry films the people just riding by, and and all of a sudden you just see the the train just stop. Yeah, they stopped the ride so they could get it out of there. But then Terry's telling about how he was then followed by security and stuff, and then questioned, and they said there was someone there from the FBI and like all this kind of like. The thing is, it makes Disney seem like a fascist state. Right. Like, all the things around it. Like, 
was that really harmful? What what was done? No, not at all. Not right. harmful at all. But it destroys the it destroys the brand, the Disney brand. Here's the thing: it doesn't even destroy the brand. It is something that most people didn't even understand. Right. And if you just take it down, like I know they did. Yeah. No, no harm, no foul. Well, no, and I, I totally agree with you. But from their perception, the 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 point of the Disney theme parks is to present an entertainment yes. paradise that's glossy, doesn't present you with anything that's jarring or makes you think of unhappy things. As like the um, well, it's people trying to escape reality, and that's right. why Banksy did what he did to make people say, "Hey." You're trying to escape reality. I'm going to bring it to your safe place. Right, exactly. Look at this. Well, it's like the um, like when we were watching this film is not yet rated. They had like the um, the different types of ratings, and for the ones that that the NC17 rating, which a lot of independent films get, they said we can't have you watching this because this would stir up feelings. Yeah, you know, and right. so so that it's that same kind of mentality is that we can't have anything that's going to challenge you in a way that will make you think uh, negatively about what's happening and what's going on because then if you do, then you're not going to enjoy the rides as much, and then your 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 experience with Disney is pretty much ruined, and then you woe is me, the sky's falling. And honestly, things like Disneyland and Disney World are, in my opinion, a problem with society because. It's encouraging people not to think about what the actual problems in our society are on a, you know, town level, on a state level, country level, global level. You know, it's encouraging. And it's this way with TV and movies, too, which is, you know, why it's funny that we're, we're doing this podcast and we watch so many movies. You're escaping from reality, so you don't have to deal with it. So you don't have to get into the the minutia of what's actually going on out there and what could be motivating you to maybe do something else with your life and say, this is an injustice that's happening out there and I want to do something about it. Or I'm just educated on it so I can talk to other people about it. Right. There's really been a societal movement over the past bunch of decades for people to just try to block that stuff out. Right. And I see it all the time when, you know, I ask people and they're like, I don't watch the news because it's just too depressing. Right. You know, well, then what do you do? Oh, I watch um, The Voice on TV or I watch, you know, any of those type of shows that are just, it's fluff. It's just entertainment because people want to not deal with reality. They don't want to deal with what's going on in the world. But then you get things that are subversive, like satire or parody, like The Colbert Report. Makes you think. Yeah. Well, and also, but the thing is that... um, I didn't really understand the point of the Colbert Report when I was younger. Right. Um, so I'm like, I don't understand why you're watching this rather than watching the news because there's a lot of interesting things that are actually happening in the world, and you should be uh, uh, you should be aware of this rather than voting on what to name the NASA, the space station toilet. You know. <laughs> right. But you know, it it is something that is subversive and is something that makes you think about society a lot like street art does a lot like yes. guerrilla filmmaking does yep. in, in independent filmmaking and and uh you know just even podcasting to a certain extent so we might be talking about something that is supposed to make you forget about your about your world but if you look at it in an objective standpoint then you can see things that you can point out things that will make people think about what's going on around them and also bring up experiences in your own life what that would make you think about things. 
Uh, one one criticism that I heard about the podcast from somebody is that they thought that we spent a lot of time talking about our own personal lives mm-hmm. rather than talking about the technical aspects of the film, which is true to a certain degree, but that's because we're working on bringing up the idea that film has a deeper meaning right. within our lives rather than just the technical how stuff. The, how, how warm the shot was where the camera was positioned and everything like that. All of that is important, but it's important because it creates the mood that then elicits the feeling. Yes. So you have to look at that to a certain degree, and I think we do. Um, but but you also have to look at it as a deeper psychological issue that brings out what the actual individual is feeling when they see this movie. I agree with you on that. So there you go. One of the things as the as the documentary progressed that was so crazy to me is how street art goes from being just illegal and thought of as just like ridiculous to all of a sudden it's becoming collectible because yeah. of the hype, because of the awareness of it, because of the hype that starts around it, and then people are uh, well for a while Banksy wouldn't wouldn't sell any of his art or anything, and people were were then when it got to a point where. You know, he was getting famous with what he was doing. People were trying to lift his art from the buildings he was putting them on and try to sell it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, during the, the documentary, you're seeing, like, these auctions where people are paying, like, tens of thousands of dollars for one piece of street art. And it's crazy to think you're like, you know, we go from people looking at it when they're passing it and saying, oh, that's a shame someone defaced that building, to all of a sudden people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for that stuff yeah. and saying, this is collectible. And, the, and I, they interviewed one street art collector who was a, a very pretentious person, in my opinion. Well, it takes that type of person. To collect art, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it was really hilarious because she's talking about like like this piece of street art that she has in her house... Um, that was a Banksy, a Banksy stencil, um, like it's some something that needs to be savored for all time. But when you when you think about what his medium actually is, and his preferred transmission of the art is that it is something that is transitory, just like our own lives. It's something that's going to go away. Yeah, and you know, I, I was thinking about the whole perception of street art and how it changed, and that pertains to so many things in life. You yeah. never know what could be viewed negatively, and then all of a sudden, it could change in the span of a year or whatever. Yeah. Take our podcast, for example. You know, maybe right now, the majority of people would hear it and think, this is stupid, you know? But if enough people start listening to it and say, there's enough here for me to find interest in, and they tell other people about it, and they tell other people, and, and enough people are just aware of it, say, a year from now, it could be the most popular podcast ever. Has anything changed at that point? Absolutely not. We'd be doing things the exact same way. So it's just so weird to think about something that it's done a certain way and it's always done that way. And it's viewed so negatively, but then given enough time, all of a sudden it's so amazing and so popular. It's so weird. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, the subversive becomes the mainstream. That's how it always works. Right. I mean, when you... Well, nerd culture, that's another Exactly. Nerd culture was frowned upon for so long. Think about the the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you, Gary Gygax. Um, you know, people were just like, oh, it's the devil, devil's game at first. People frowned upon it like, you stupid nerds. 
right now, nerd culture is becoming cool. Yeah, but but still, you have to deal as as a gamer and as a game master. I still have to deal with that stereotype when I'm talking with certain people because they don't realize, you know, how out of touch with with common trends they are. They don't know that that things are drifting more towards the um, the geek aesthetic, the nerd yeah. aesthetic. Right. Um, and also, like for example, nerdcore music, um, which I greatly enjoy. I enjoy too. You know, you have you have, the godfather of nerdcore music is arguably Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. And, and he went from being someone who was very subversive to now being one of the most mainstream people and someone who's broadly accepted by the mainstream music industry because he is able to highly define what what is ridiculous in music and then, you know, it's having your song parodied by Weird Al Yankovic is considered to be a sign of success for oh, artists. Yeah, definitely. Um, another I, thing I will point out though real fast that yeah. for the current um Iteration of of what nerdcore hip hop art is right now. Yeah, um, the grandfather of of nerdcore is MC Frontalot. Frontalot, yes, that's his title. Yeah, so just so people know. Yeah, which I love MC Frontalot. It, it, go go out. listen to MC Frontalot. He's got a lot of great stuff going on there. And there's um, a documentary about him called Nerdcore Rising. It at least was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's. I'm still not there. sure if it's still on there now. It's pretty fantastic because him and his band when they when they get up to do a set, they actually do like a whole Wookie impersonation <laughs> to to get warmed up for the show. Um, but you know, the, like we were saying, that the outsider becomes the mainstream over the course of the life. And the thing is, then once it becomes mainstream, the thing that the, that we've accepted as the mainstream, something else has to become subversive. But the people who were originally the, the, the subversive ones then look at the, the thing that's n- the new anti-establishment and they're like, I can't believe that this is even challenging our, our status quo because we, we've got it all right now mm-hmm. and things are, things are not going the way that we want with this new line of things. Like, for example, we were talking about RPGs. So for a long time, RPGs was based out of wargaming. You know, you move your characters around the map and you hit the monster. But now there are, there's this thing called story gaming with, um, with games that focus on, you know, creating a, a story that's based off of emotional elements, not so much based off of, I'm going to smack it in its face. Yeah. So. True. Like, true story. Like yeah. Getting into yeah, it. exactly. Um, moving ahead in the actual film, when we get to the point where you know, everyone's pressuring Terry and they're basically like, look, or are you going to make this documentary? Because he'd been saying for a while, I'm going to make a documentary. documentary. But he didn't know how to do it. So Banksy pressures him. He's like, make this documentary. So he makes his cut of the documentary and Banksy watches it and is like, wow, this is terrible. It's like a a 90 minute long MTV music video. Yeah, it's very ADD. It's crazy. So he basically is like, give me your footage why don't you go be a street artist, actually jump into it and go be a street artist on your own, have a show, do whatever, I'll work on this. Which, by the way, I wrote down, I found out that Banksy had to, and his people had to go, go through Terry's tapes, which took them over 10,000 hours oh, to go through all the tapes, and that rendered them like seconds of film. 
yeah. for 10,000 hours. I mean, that's just, it's nuts. But that, a lot of work there. So <laughs> then we know Terry goes and he turns himself into Mr. Brainwash because he starts doing the art. And like I said before, it was so weird to me because it was like the fan boy. And he was just like, I'm just going to start doing it. There was no real... There was no real message he was trying to send. He was just trying to do street art. Yeah. And he wanted to be successful. He just wanted it so bad. Um, and it was just weird to me. And then it was bad because he's going to have this big show and he hires all these people. And he's not even doing the art then. He's yeah. getting graphic designers to come in. He tells them an idea of what he wants. They do it. And they show him a bit, bunch of different versions, and then he says yes to that, no to that, yes to that, no to that. That's not art. Like, you're not doing it if people are doing it for you. But then I started thinking, this is very indicative of a lot of things in our society. Think about corporations. You know, the CEOs of companies get credit for the products that those companies pump out. Right. But they didn't come up with the ideas, most likely, of what product's coming out. They didn't actually work on the products. Right. It was all their employees under them it was who the were research, doing it. Research and development. Exactly. Those people get zero credit. And that's what's happening with Mr. Brainwash. These people don't get credit. They're just being paid for their ideas to be taken right. and to create this uh, image of who Mr. Brainwash is, who he actually isn't. Which is almost in and of itself the art of the, the piece. It's not yes. street art anymore, but he's, he's making a, a, like a comment on... The creative process as it's done in a consumer society. Yeah. Um, you know, Mr. Brainwash is the perfect example in this film of what happens to things that get popular. Yeah. You know, they become popular just because they get promoted a certain way or people talk about them enough, no matter what they are. It, this is kind of like, the way they show it, it's the thumb in the eye of the people who showed up to Mr. Brainwash's gallery because... It's not street art, and it's being done in a very un-street art way, yet these people are like, this is the best uh, street art, he's like the most uh, avant-garde street artist right now, and it's worth so much money, and like, you know, there's a scene where someone calls Terry and he wants to get a piece of the artwork before the gallery happens to say that he did that. So Terry's just like throwing some random-ass price yeah. On his piece of artwork. Like, you see it when he's on the phone. He's just like, oh, that one, um, $30,000. When all the resources and time that went into it are probably nowhere near that value. Right, but that's the same thing that he did with his clothing store at yes. the very beginning of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's that type of person. He's, he's just making it up as he goes along, for the most part. Yes. Um, and and the, the crazy thing is, he seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah. In, in his personality. He's a nice guy who just doesn't... Who, who seems to be a little bit naive. Yeah. You know. Um, God bless his wife. Cause <laughs> Jesus. She, she seemed to be the, like the most long-suffering person in the world. I agree with that. Um, I did want to say one other thing. Uh, to tie it in, I was talking about the corporations and how they do that. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, with Mr. Brainwash, that idea of creating a fake icon... A team of people creating a fake icon and making it, you know, financially viable. That happens with the music industry now. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, these people like, you know, Britney Spears and, you know, whoever, they aren't the artist. Yeah. Like, they, they can't do it. They're not they're, writing the songs. They're not... Yeah, they're not writing... They're, they're making music. 
they're only performing it, but they're not writing it. They're being auto tuned on top of that. Did you? Did you? And it's ridiculous. A, a few days ago, um, and this might date the podcast a little bit. There was this video that was trending, um, that was a leak of of her without auto tuning without, yeah, and everything. Exactly. Yeah, and, and and she can't say it was awful. Right, but that's the trend now. They take a face, mm-hmm. a body, and they're like, "This person looks good," and we can send them out on stage. They can do some dancing. So we're going to write all their music for them. We're going to make them sound good by auto-tuning them and, you know, putting the right beats behind them and all that. It's a whole team that goes into creating the image of this person. But it's all fake. Yeah. Because that person can't do that stuff. Right. And it's the same thing that you're seeing in this film with Mr. Brainwash. Because he can't do it because he's not doing it. No. He has other people do it for him. It's crazy to me. But it's really interesting in the context of the documentary. Yeah. But, but I mean, the thing is that at, at, at this point, it's such a left turn from what you're expecting from the documentary that it almost feels like it's a farce at this point. Yes. You know, and, you know, the idea that Banksy would, would endorse something that is so farcical is almost hard to believe. Yeah. I actually wrote something down about where he decided to jump into street art yeah. with his gallery. Um, I'll just read it verbatim because I thought I did an okay job. Uh, with anything creative, a big component is the journey. Mr. Brainwash tried to just jump to the top, which bypasses evolution of artwork and creation of true meaning in the craft. So for him, what he was doing, it didn't even have any meaning. Right. You know, and, and that's where the best stuff comes from, is people who are really tied to it and have the passion and have been through the journey to figure out how to hone their skills and how to um, have the final piece succinctly uh, convey their feelings. You know what was most interesting about about Mr. Brainwatch's first piece of art? that The first street art that he became known for was an actual self-portrait. Uh, it was a... Well, here, here's what it was. It was a photograph of Terry with his camera um, and you, you can visibly see his face and everything like that. Um, so you know that it, it is somebody, and it, it, it's an identifiable character. But he goes around Los Angeles plastering pictures of his own face up as street street art. Yeah. Which is mind-boggling if you think about it. Like, instead of, like, having a, a message of some kind, like... It's just, like, I want to be famous. Right. Barry did, Banksy did. He was his message. Mr. Brainwash is the message. He's not the person... Coming up with them. I mean, that's exactly what celebrity is. Yeah. You know, people being promoted as themselves, as I'm. I am what should be famous. Right. And whereas you know, Banksy and Shepard Fairey, like they're pushing messages and other icons as this should be the message to focus on, not an individual. Right. Um. The other big thing I wanted to point out is the people's reactions to the Mister Brainwash art gallery show were comical to me because as the viewer watching the documentary, you know all of the circumstances around what's at the show. Right. The people going into it really don't. So it's really interesting to see how people are reading into his artwork what they want to because they want to believe that this is the cutting edge of street art 
and that this guy is so avant-garde like they've been told. Right. And that mainly comes down to all these people who want to be snobs with things, where it's like, I'm into what's on the cutting edge, you're missing out, I'm in the minority of the people who are hip and cool, and on to the next thing. And that's what you see with all these people as they're being interviewed. And you could tell these people were, like, reaching for things to pull out of the artwork. Yeah. When you know the behind the scenes of it, and you're like, there's nothing to there's it. There's nothing to it. But it's it's so funny because people read into it all the time. And to be honest, I bet with these films, we read things into it all the time mm-hmm. because that's something we feel we have seen and it's not actually there or we want to see in bringing meaning out of it. Uh, that's done with literary works. People do that yes. stuff all the time. Uh, lyrics in um, uh, music. You know, all sorts of things. Uh, you know People what? People do it in craft beer. Yeah. They do that as well. Oh, this is this is a great example of, of that. Uh, this is something that, that I actually experienced. Um, so, how long has it been since we mentioned Star Wars on the podcast? No, oh, jeez. Here we go. Yeah. Do it. So, um, I, I used to be very involved in literary forums, the science fiction and fantasy literature forums uh, for novels and stuff like that. And when Revenge of the Sith came out, uh, back in 2005, um, one of the the author of the the novelization, Matthew Stover, was was coming onto these message boards, and he's like, "So ask me anything." Um, and there's this there's this uh, motif in the book of um, Anakin Skywalker trying to ride the dragon of his own heart, um, or trying to you know tame, tame his own heart like he's he's trying to ride a dragon. And then in later on in the in the movie and in the book, Obi Wan Kenobi is shown riding this lizard like dragon like animal through the book. Through the through this chase scene where he's going after General Grievous. So I, I straight up asked the author, was this some kind of parallel that you were trying to draw between the two things? And he's like, Oh. No. No, that, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? Maybe you gave it better meaning. To him, yeah, by, by saying yeah, that. So was, and who yeah. knows? Maybe he took that and ever since has told people that's what it's supposed to be. Very interesting. I think this is an appropriate time for us to say uh, what we talked about before we started recording. What we should say at the end. Okay. This potentially, there's a theory out there that this documentary is a fabrication made by Banksy and Shepard Fairey as basically a joke on people. And a way to promote street art. In general. In general. That this whole story of Terry is not legitimate, and the Mr. Brainwash thing is totally fake, and that they came up with Mr. Brainwash, and... I mean, they did the gallery show because it's there. Right. But that truly who was behind all of it were Shepard Fairey and and Banksy. Banksy. Um, I think that... I think that that might be 50% true. I think that maybe Banksy and Fairey pushed Terry in this particular for manner because they did want to make this kind of statement with the documentary. However, um, the amount of footage that Terry has in, in real life, like you said, 10,000 hours worth of footage, that to me doesn't speak the, the process of somebody who's um, in on a hoax willing. Right. But that also could be fake. Yeah, you know what I mean? Be. Like they just it said could be. It. They could just say that. But you also do have video of a lot of extensive video of his personal life with his family. You also have video of him chasing down stars like like the members of Oasis 
uh, Shaquille O'Neal, Jay, Jay Leno. Leno yeah. yeah, so he he apparently spends a lot of time with video camera pranks that he pulls on people who work in his in his clothing store. You know, so maybe there is something to the fact that he, at the very least, he likes to carry a camera around everywhere he goes. So, it, and it could be a situation where the whole film is real until the Mr. Brainwash part. Yeah. That could be, too. You yeah. know, maybe the Terry you see in the, in the documentary is the real Terry until Mr. Brainwash happens, and that's the Shepard Fairy and Banksy-created um, icon. Um, which, if that is the case... It's funny and interesting because it makes it an ironic film. Right. Because here the film is talking about kind of how ridiculous perception and hype is, yet they're doing that by making the film and by having created Mr. Brainwash and having that gallery show. So I don't know if it's fake or if it's not fake, but I like the documentary either way. It works either way. It, it wor- really does. It works as a straight story and it works as a piece of uh, hypercriticism. Yeah. And this is a documentary I saw maybe about three years ago originally. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that it was still on Netflix, I don't think it's ever come down. Yeah. Uh, I was excited. I'm like, yeah, we should do this. And then we found out it was a fan pick, uh, Seth Harris. So, Seth, man, you've, you've picked some, some good stuff. Let's go ahead and give our ratings for this one. Let's do it. Shall I take the lead? Go ahead. Let me do it. Uh, this film is very thought-provoking, which is something I really, really like. Uh, the documentary is pretty tight. Uh, it doesn't waste much time, and it's edited well. Obviously, the camera work is what you're going to get. You know, there's a lot of home video mm-hmm. to it, so you kind of need to set your expectations accordingly. Um, the music is used just fine. There's obviously no acting in it. Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe Mr. Brainwash was a bunch of acting. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Uh, the topic is so, so interesting, and you get to see a lot of really cool uh, street art in the film. Um, stuff that I would just like to see again. And I know there is a website that, that highlights, they talk about it in the documentary, there's a website that highlights yeah. uh, a lot of street art and has photos of it up. Um, so I want to find out what that was, I forgot. Yeah, I... Check it out. I haven't, um, I don't remember it as well. I've spent a lot of time looking at street art online because I think it's pretty cool. But anyway, go ahead. Overall, very thought-provoking, very interesting. It's definitely a documentary I would watch again, and I would recommend it to every single person. I I have been recommending it to people for years now. Uh, That said, I want to give it four stars. I like it. Uh, I I think that this is probably one of the most accessible films that we've watched in a long time for the podcast. Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, It's it's definitely something that I think... Um, when people hear documentary, they think, oh, that's going to be boring. But this film is really entertaining. They do a great job of bringing a sense of humor to the film. They do a great job of showing how street art is made and how street art is accessible to a lot of people, even though um, even though it, it's only meant to be ephemeral. And I think that's part of the reason that street art is successful, is that it is um, something that people can relate to easily you know, and get that message across very quickly. So I think that's a, a great strength of the film. Um, again, Terry seems like an interesting guy. Uh, whether or not Mr. Brainwash is something that is uh, an accurate portrayal of a reality, or if it's just something that was come up with as a statement on how street art is becoming mainstream, 
either way, I think that works and is a, ver- is a valid approach to the film. So I'm going to go ahead and give this one four stars as well. Okay. Four stars overall for yeah. the podcast. That's a very nice rating right yeah. there. Yeah. Not much has, has surpassed the four star rating. Um, but who knows? In the future, maybe there will be something. That's true. We have one more order of business before we end this. We do. We actually got another iTunes review. Yeah. Uh, this is this one is from Jackie, <clears throat> and Jackie uh, went ahead and, and sent me a fan selection as well. So we'll be reviewing that movie for her in the very near future. Let's go ahead and read the iTunes review that we have here. These guys can really give an analysis of a movie. Cabin in the Woods is one of my favorites, and even after seeing it several times, listening to the analysis is great. Admittedly, my first podcast list listen was to see the review of what movies I've seen, but it's become a good source of seeing different movies. The fact that the movies are on Netflix separates this podcast from others because it is so accessible. Thank you for pointing that out. That's yes. something that we've tried very hard to do. It is very, it is highly professional. And I feel the love for movies coming through the headphones. We do love movies. We do. Probably a little too much. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Probably too much. We are watching a lot of movies. A lot of movies. I kind of barely ever watch movies for myself now. Yeah. Every now and yeah. then I force it because I'm like, you know, I should. I should. Yeah. Um, I've been I've been watching a lot more, like, half-hour episodes of television. Yeah. You know, because that's easier to fit into the schedule around, around the movies. I like the fact that in the review Jackie talked about the cabin in the woods because we all know how Carlin feels about the cabin in the woods. That's one of my a, favorites. That's a fantastic movie. All right, so just to let you know, the next movie that we will be reviewing will be The King's Speech. Oh, thank you, Jackie. That's that's a good really film. good movie. Um, that deserved all the all the awards and lo- uh, positive laudatory notes that I got. So uh, we're really excited to, to watch that one and make sure that we review it properly. Yes, uh, it's one I've already seen, so I'll be excited to watch it a second time and see what I can pick up on. Also, stay tuned for that episode when I will severely nerd out about how much I love Jeffrey Rush. Yes. Because I do. Good old Jeffrey Rush. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great week. Uh, enjoy some movies. Let us know what you've enjoyed and let us know what we can review for you. Have a good one. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast Production.